Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Andrea Pride. Today, we're going to talk about crypto assets and to help me through that is my guest, Ryan Lefford. Ryan is the National Banking and Capital Markets Assurance Leader for PwC Canada. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. What exactly is a crypto asset? And linked to that, what is a cryptocurrency? So these things aren't that easy to explain, but I'll, I'll start with a, a little bit of a technical definition and then describe a little bit more what it means in, in reality. Um, so crypto assets are transferable digital assets, and they're designed in a way that prohibits their copying or, or duplication. And they're built off a technology that's referred to as blockchain or distributed ledger technology. Um, if you think about blockchain at its core, it's a digital decentralized ledger that keeps a record of all the transactions that take place across a peer-to-peer -peer network. And it enables the encryption of that information, which is absolutely critical. There isn't a, a legal definition of crypto assets, as there are for various securities in, in different jurisdictions. However, we are seeing that crypto assets can legally be considered a security by some local regulators. Now, it's important to note that there are various subsets of cryptographic assets, and you know, we've kind of split them into four different categories, and I can go through those, uh, those four now. So the first one is cryptocurrency, and these are digital tokens or coins that are based on that blockchain technology. The most popular one is, is Bitcoin. These operate independently of a central bank and are really intended to function as a medium of exchange between parties. So those are the now, ones that we've all heard of, I think, aren't they? Absolutely. That's, those are the ones that get all the press and... Um, you know, are, are becoming more and more popular being part of an individual's or an institution's investment strategy. If we contrast that against something like an asset-backed token, these are tokens, again, based on blockchain technology, but they derive their value based upon something that doesn't actually exist on the blockchain, but is instead a representation of ownership of an actual physical asset. So we see asset-backed tokens for you know, gold or oil, for example. You buy the token, you effectively get an ownership right of that physical asset. We can move on to utility tokens. Again, similar digital tokens based on blockchain. Here they provide access to a product or a service, and then they derive their value based upon that, right? I kind of like to compare these things to you know tickets that you would get to an amusement park or or a, a movie theater when we used to be able to go to to movie theaters you know it gives you the right to that product or service they don't provide ownership in that platform or that particular asset but you can trade them between holders and they're not really used as a medium of exchange and then i guess the last category are security tokens these are similar, more in kind to traditional securities. They provide an economic stake in a legal entity. Uh, sometimes there's a right to receive cash or another financial asset. Um, sometimes you're able to vote. You know, so very similar to 
traditional securities that we, we have seen out there today. Okay, thank you for that. So just getting a bit more into what these things are, I heard a story on the radio the other day that someone had got a bit confused, had a bad day, and by accident thrown away a hard disk on a computer. And the reason it was in the news was because he wanted to get permission to from the council to dig in a landfill site where he thought that he could identify where this hard disk was. And he thought that he was offering something like 50 million pounds as a share of what he thought he had lost on that hard disk. Could that really happen? Absolutely. It's kind of scary. <laughs> it's and, scary. You know, we don't want people rummaging through the garbage trying to find you know, hard drives. But what it does is it highlights one of the key differences between crypto and our traditional financial sector. We're all used to there being this central intermediary that, you know, it's central bank or, or somebody like that, that they operate in a very centralized manner. Um, there's generally a party that has the responsibility for storing the source of truth and ha- like how much funds you have, what's your p- password, et cetera. With blockchain and, and crypto assets, there is no central authority and therefore the c- system is decentralized. Some argue the current banking system is slow and expensive. And I, I think we've all experienced at one point in time depositing a check and you know the bank says, well, we're going to place a hold on it. It's going to take you know, three days for it to clear, because there's always these central databases that store all of that data. What crypto offers is are real-time transactions and a decentralized platform that makes it harder to hack. It also replaces that central authority with a decentralized network. And instead of one party having to approve a transaction, the network itself approves transactions through a consensus process, meaning all number of different parties have to agree. And it can be done through multiple parties solving an equation. And we often hear about mining and you know these complex formulas, or there's also what's referred to as proof of stake, which is again, proving that they hold a stake in that network and voting accordingly. So what all of this means is that with crypto, there is no central party to call up and say, hey, I've lost my password. It's fantastic for security, but you know, looking at this particular example, it's obviously not the best user experience having to <laughs> rummage through garbage. There are now crypto exchanges play that central custodian role, but you can also then pull your digital asset off the internet altogether and secure them in a drive that you can then put in a safety deposit box or, or some other secure location other than a, a garbage dump. There are, in fact, actually safes that are built into mountain ranges where people store their digital private keys to make sure that they're absolutely safe from theft or damage from water or other things. Wow. Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 um, that's incredible, really. And I think I saw also that something like 20% of all Bitcoin is inaccessible. Is that, is that also sound about right? It it sounds about right. I I haven't done that particular calculation myself, (laughs) but I wouldn't be surprised if it was something in that range because you think to the early days and there's, you know, stories of individuals spending, you know, X number of Bitcoins on a pizza, you know, it wasn't a big deal to have these things stored on a, a hard drive and that hard drive is no longer accessible. Today, it's, it's a very different story. And of course, you know, we'll look back on this podcast and I'll, you know, right now it's trading around 38,000 for Bitcoin, but, you know, that might be very cheap when we, when we look at this recording in the future. So, 
you know, what it does highlight then, I guess, is for is continuing on for Bitcoin, but a number of these digital assets, they are limited in terms of the number of tokens. So Bitcoin, there's 21 million tokens that will ever be created, and that's it. So if there are tokens that are out of circulation because people can't access them, you know, that helps reduce the availability of the token, increases scarcity, and, you know, drives up price, you know, supply and demand. If there's not enough supply, um, prices have to go up. Very different than a central bank who might have that printing press available to them to continue to churn out new currency whenever they feel like it. Okay, so if you've lost your password, it's gone. No one will ever get those Bitcoin ever again. Wow. Yeah, in those situations, unfortunately, yes. But you can go to an exchange and try to get some other protection that way as well. Okay. So cryptocurrencies used to have a bit of a Wild West feel to them, like shades of the criminal underworld, and why do you really need to be this secretive about your your currency? Is that still the case, or are we seeing real companies? I think you mentioned some people are now real people are actually holding crypto assets for legitimate reasons. So who are they? What would their reasons be? Yeah, it is fair to say that crypto has had a bit of a Wild West reputation. And that's really driven off the fact that it it is decentralized, which means that up until now, there's been very little regulation over the network. It also crosses borders, so it's hard for an individual country to put in those regulations. And that has opened up opportunities for money laundering, drug trafficking, or even terrorist financing. What has changed is that regulators are now stepping in and implementing the appropriate safeguards and controls. Some countries now have digital licenses, rules for crypto custodians and and other safeguards. It's not where the banking system is in terms of regulation, but it's clearly headed in the right direction. We have seen really an explosion of interest from institutional investors this past year, and it's continuing over the last few months to really pick up steam. You know, there are some well-known names such as PayPal, Fidelity, Square, for example, just to name a few, that are now offering crypto-related services or, or are holding crypto. And that list is, is really growing by the day. You know, the types of activities that we are seeing in this space, we are, are seeing the launch of investment funds and, and ETFs, which open up the ability for investors to gain exposure to these crypto assets. There are crypto exchanges out there, which, you know, try to play that intermediary role where you go to them, they will earn a spread, but provide access to the crypto market. There are these asset backed tokens or stable coins. Again, as I mentioned earlier, that they are based upon an underlying physical asset, such as, as gold, or, you know, there's these other tokens out there that are based upon US dollars and uh, you can purchase those. There's companies that are in the mining space. You know, this isn't the same mining that we are used to with, with precious metals, but they are mining the, the crypto assets through that consensus approval mechanism that uh, I referred to earlier. And then look, there's just other companies out there that are just holding crypto as a reserve. MicroStrategy comes to mind. They're a very significant holder of, of crypto assets. And you know, I guess Elon Musk as well has publicly stated his interest in this space and his mm-hmm. desire to hold uh, Bitcoin. So 
you know, it really is becoming mainstream and, and opening up effectively a new, a new asset class by, you know, having these things available to the masses. Right. So it all feels like that's all coming together to, to allow these things to be more common. So what's driving that, do you think? So there's clearly a recognition of the benefits of this type of asset, the, the new asset class, the store value. And look, there's some real concerns out there about the stability of, of some central banks. You just look at how much spending there is as a result of, of COVID. Debt levels are skyrocketing and how some of these jurisdictions will be able to, to pay their bills in the longer term. You know, we, we do have a little bit of a first world bias, I find, depending upon the country you know, that you're in, where there are a number of countries out there who have had their currencies devalued in the past, that they are facing you know, significant difficulties right now, and their citizens are looking for another store of value. So, you know, if they feel that there is a realistic chance that their currency in their bank account might be devalued, then why not take it out of the classic banking system and store it in somewhere else that will hold its value better than, you know, the the currency that they have to date. Even like in Europe, right? We see negative interest rates. Why hold it there when you could hold it outside and and not have to pay those, those negative rates as well? Yes, it's all relative. It is absolutely. It is all relative, and by no means is this a, a way of saying you know this is the only path forward. But you know the ability to have an alternative, especially in jurisdictions that we haven't seen as mature of a banking system, is is quite attractive. And then you know within our markets, uh, some are using it as a hedge against inflation and and some other uh, you know other economic factors. You know, there's also a couple other things that have happened. Obviously, with the maturity of the regulatory environment, that's opened up more opportunities as well. I've spent a fair amount of time on our side with PwC looking at the the accounting implications, but also the audit implications. We are seeing service organization reports, or SOC 1 or SOC 2, now being issued. And these are reports that provide assurance over the control environment at these various service organizations that play a role in the crypto ecosystem. So if you are holding funds at a custodian that may be connected to one of these exchanges, you can now, um, in some situations, get a a SOC 1 report, which provides the user with comfort over the effectiveness uh, and the design of the controls that are in place there. And then finally, the, the system did struggle for a number of years over obtaining uh, financial statement audit reports, where there were clear challenges in the audit profession about obtaining a sufficient amount of comfort over the existence and ownership rights for these assets. And, you know, you think about it, these are all, you know, digital in, in cyberspace somewhere, right? You, you can't touch and feel this stuff. And the audit techniques that we've used in the past may, you know, may not really be effective here. So it, it created some challenges you know, and speaking for, for PwC, one of the things that we have done is we have created a piece of software that helps interrogate the blockchain and helps look at the ownership of the, of the assets. And that is a part of our, of our audit approach. Um, and we use that where appropriate on, on our different jobs. Okay, thanks. So they failed the kick test, as they say. That sort of brings me nicely because this is IFRS talks, let's not forget. And so the question I have to ask is, how are they reported in financial statements? So what should we expect to see in financial statements about 
people who hold Bitcoin and other assets. Yeah, well, lots of disclosure. Uh, we always <laughs> encourage that to tell the story in, in areas where they might be a, a new asset, obviously. And, and some of this really comes down to you know, the different types of crypto assets that I, I described earlier. And I definitely recommend reading our crypto accounting publication. And I'm, I'm proud to lead a fantastic team at PwC where we look at those issues and uh, come together with a, a global view. Um, so if you check in the talking points, there should be a link to yeah, we'll the link uh, publication. Excellent. So, you know, let's let's just take Bitcoin, for example, because it, again, it's the most most popular one. We spent a fair amount of time determining or, or discussing what is the right classification of an asset such as this. We asked ourselves, is it cash? And we said, no, it's, there's no real legal tender here. Um, and most are not backed by a government or a state. Is it a financial asset? No, not really. There's, there's not a contractual right to receive cash or another financial asset. There's no contractual relationship. Is it a fixed asset? No, there's no physical form for this stuff. Inventory, it could be only if an entity holds that crypto for sale in the ordinary course of business, such as a, a broker trader, for example. But then failing that, we're really left with treating them as intangible assets. And mm. they, are, they, are, they are identifiable. They can be sold or exchanged or transferred. It's not cash, it's non, not, or it's not a non-monetary asset as well, and it has no physical form. So you, know, you put that together, and you know, that's where you might see in the financial statements that they show up as, a, as an intangible asset. And look, look, there's all different types of assets and there's new, new ones being created. And it's important to look at the characteristics of that asset before you know, reaching the conclusion about classification as well as measurement. You know, there's also active discussions at central bank levels right now where almost every single major bank, central bank out there is looking at projects of how they might issue their own central bank digital currency. And that may change the conclusion of these things as new assets are released. So make sure that you truly understand the nature of the token and its purpose uh, before you move into the into the accounting stage. Okay. So I think the ISB probably went through a similar thought process to your, yours and the cryptocurrencies were identified as a possible project in the early discussions about the IESB's 2020 agenda consultation. And we're expecting that it will be described in the request for views that should be published later this year. In your personal view, do you think that's a, there's a problem here that needs to be fixed through standard setting? Look, look, there's a lot of guidance that is out there right now, but there is no crypto section of the IFRS handbook. and but the existing guidance really provides the framework required to determine the accounting treatment for most of these items. And, you know, that's something that we found going through our publication is, you know, we could find comparable sections and, and look at the guidance accordingly. There is a separate conversation that even though these might be the right answer from a technical accounting perspective, does it really align with what the user's expectation of the transaction is? You know, building off my previous comments about Bitcoin, treating it as an intangible asset makes sense from IFRS. But if you ask an investor or another user of that financial statement out there, they likely wouldn't share that same view. And you know, many look at these assets and they think that they should be recorded at fair value. 
um, especially as the markets are, are more volatile. And, you know, I, I do say this is my personal view and I'm clearly biased here given my crypto accounting role for the firm and having to answer tough questions that come in from teams all over the globe. But, you know, I think it is a good exercise to go through and really ask ourselves, even though these are, you know, the technical correct answers, are they really useful to the end user? And, you know, does that mean we have to build in some crypto related exceptions into the standards to better line with the expectations or, you know, find some other solutions to make sure that the end result, the financial statements are as usable as possible and actually help investors in, in the best way possible. Okay, so let's see if that bears out. So thank you, Ryan, for a fascinating insight into the world of crypto. Thanks for doing this podcast with me. And then all that remains for me to say is thank you also to all our listeners. Stay safe and happy accounting. The preceding program was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.